I just wore this mask up here to show each one of you guys how good I do with Romans 13. <laughs> Awkward silence where the sermon just went downhill fast. I came up with this idea after running this morning, so you never know after running if you have a really good idea or a really bad idea. But I'm going to be preaching on missions through jars of clay. And um, I thought of my mass that I had to remember for church, and it's the, my Jeff Poland Ministry Missions, uh, Jeff Poland Ministry Mask. So I actually am not trying to be an arrogant prick and showing you how well I do with Romans 13. Uh, but as, I, as we dive into missions, I thought maybe this is a good way to catch people's attention with, when I think of my, uh, the calling that each one of us have in our lives, I think of uh, my friend Jeff, who is gifted in music and who is gifted in the work of being an evangelist. I'm not good at either of those. I'm really bad at music, but I recognize that music impacts culture, and so if someone's good at it, that's where God is calling them to. And I recognize that if you are gifted as an evangelist, that's where you need to go. You need to be an evangelist. And so for me to put my time and energy into those things is a waste because I'm gifted somewhere else. So, but, but I recognize the significance of them. And so I'm called to support a ministry like that in prayer, emotional support, or financial support. And, I, and that's sort of the basis of where I want to start our, my message this morning, that I'll put my mask in my pocket now. Whoops, wrong pocket. Anyway, uh, each one of you guys, each one of you have been called by God for a very specific time and a calling. He's given you specific gifts, talents, and a calling that he's asking you to step into. And he's also asking you for the ones that you don't have, to support those in, in whether it's financial gifts or whatever that might be. A biblical call to missions. We're going to be looking at Roman, uh, sorry, 2 Corinthians 4, 1 through 7 specifically. I'll be reading Roman, 2 Corinthians 4, 1 through 12 then. But I wanted to start with a biblical call to missions. Uh, the biblical call to missions starts, the Bible storyline begins with creation when God created the world, and he said, it's good. That's where the, the biblical call for mission starts, in the Garden of Eden, when he says, it's good. Everything is as it should be. And at the beginning of Genesis already, we see a rebellion against God happening with a serpent coming to Adam and Eve. And already in uh, Genesis 3, verse 15, we see God making a promise that the seed of the woman will crush the serpent's head. At this point of Humanity, God could have easily just wiped out humanity and started over. But already in the Garden of Eden, he's starting the plan of rede promising redemption. And as humanity continues to move forward, we see hatred, idolatry, we see sin continue to grow. And again, God could have wiped out humanity, but he saves eight and the, spares aid in the flood. And as time progresses, we see God call out Abraham, and we all know the history of the children of Israel from just deception, murder, idolatry, whatever you could, but still God is, God is there. God is, uh, God is still promising his redemption. And 2,000 years after Abraham, uh, Jesus, the light of the gospel, uh, come, comes to earth. 
And that's where I really wanted to, to start this message with. Scripture was written over a span of 1,500 years. It was put together by, it was categorized into 66 different books by roughly 35 to 40 different authors. And we're so used to, to looking at each book of the Bible, being Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and they each sort of have their own message, their own purpose. But Scripture, when we look at it, is all tied together uh, to one storyline, to one message, and that is the light of the gospel, uh, Jesus Christ. And if you look up behind me on the screen, which I know some of you have already been doing, I'm just going to go through, and I don't have them memorized, so I'm going to be looking down and I'm going to be reading. But Jesus, in every book of the Bible, is going to set up the foundation for our sermon. In Genesis, Jesus Christ is the seed of the woman. In Exodus, he is the Passover lamb. In Leviticus, he is our high priest. In Numbers, he is the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. In Deuteronomy, he is the prophet like unto Moses. In Joshua, he is the commander of the Lord's army. In Judges, the judge and the lawgiver. In Ruth, he is our kinsman redeemer. In First and Second Samuel, he is the seed of David. In Kings and Chronicles, he is our reigning king. Ezra, he is our faithful scribe. In Nehemiah, he is the rebuilder of everything broken. In Esther, he is our Mordecai, our advocate. In Job, he is our ever-living redeemer. In Psalms, he is our shepherd in Proverbs, he is our wisdom. In Ecclesiastes, he is our meaning for life. Song of Solomon, he is the loving bridegroom. In Isaiah, he is the prince of peace. Jeremiah and Lamentations, he is our weeping prophet. In Ezekiel, the glorious Lord. In Daniel, he is the fourth man in the fiery furnace. In Hosea, he is our faithful husband. In Joel, he is our outpour of the Holy Spirit. In Amos, he is our burden bearer. Obadiah, he is the judge and savior. Jonah, he is the risen prophet. In Micah, he is the ruler of the world from Bethlehem. In Nahum, he is our stronghold. Habakkuk, he is our watchman. In Zephaniah, he is mighty to save. Haggai, he is the restorer. In Zechariah, he is the branch of David, the one pierced for us. In Malachi, he is the son of righteousness. In Matthew, he is the king of the Jews, the Messiah, the Christ, the son of the living God. In Mark, he is the servant, the miracle worker. In Luke, he is the baby in the manger, the son of man. In John, he is the Son of God, the living word, the way, the truth, and the life. In Acts, he is the Savior of the world, ascended Lord. In Romans, he is our justifier. In 1 Corinthians, he is our resurrection. In 2 Corinthians, he is our comfort. In Galatians, he is our liberty. In Ephesians, he is the head of the church. In Philippians, he is our joy. In Colossians, he is our completeness, the glue that holds our world together. First and Second Thessalonians, he is the coming king. First and second, Timothy is our mediator. Philemon, he is our benefactor. Titus, the blessed hope. Hebrews, he is our perfection. And James, he is the power behind our faith. And first and second, Peter, he is the chief shepherd and the chief cornerstone. And first, second, and third, John, he is the truth and the everlasting life. And Jude, he is the foundation of our faith, our security. And in Revelations, he is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. This is the foundation of our faith. This, as I was putting a message, to, trying to think of how I want to put a missions message together that, it, it, that reflects this time. And today, it doesn't take much to look out into our world and see a lot of divisiveness, a lot of anger, a lot of hurt, a lot of just like, from both, from Christians and non-Christians, like, there's just a lot of divisiveness, and there's a lot of yelling back and forth. And, but this, 
when, scripture, when we see Scripture all being tied together toward Christ, this is what will pierce through all that divisiveness, through all that anger, all that darkness, and be that light that speaks to every human heart, whether in here or an unbeliever. Where This Jesus will speak to every human heart when we see that all of Scripture points to the Redeemer that will crush the, the serpent's head. And it's the, it's the foundation that Paul understood as we move into uh, 2 Corinthians. And I think sometimes it's, it's hard for us in this digital age. Maybe it's, it's always been like that. I don't know. But um, it's hard for us not to see the need to defend, defend, defend all the time, to be right, to be a prosecuting attorney, attorney for the gospel. And Jesus, God is asking us simply to be a witness for his light, to be a witness versus a prosecuting attorney. So I think that's really what I want to, you know, where I want to dive into from there. Let's read 2 Corinthians 4, verses 1 through 12. And like I said, I'll just be looking at the first seven verses then, but the others really uh, are powerful verses as well there. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced the disgraceful and underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled only to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord with ourselves as our servants, for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying the body, the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we, live, for we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Paul starts, and I think when we look at 2 Corinthians, there are a lot of scriptures we can look at that have a specific call to missions, the Great Commission, stuff like that. This, I think, this section describes what missions looks like. And he starts with the word therefore uh, in, in chapter 4. Uh, so obviously there's a reason he has a therefore, so we have to go back. Uh, and I'm just going to briefly, uh, I've read enough for you guys, uh, but briefly look at verse, chapter 3, verses 12 through 18. Uh, Paul says that we have such a hope. And this hope is a belief that all the promises in the new covenant will occur. It is a hope or knowing that we have complete forgiveness of sins to those who believe. Verse 13, it says that Moses put a veil, uh, had a veil over his face. Uh, Moses didn't have the confidence that Paul had. Moses didn't have the confidence that we can have because in the Old, Co- in the old Covenant, it was partially veiled. The glory of God was partially veiled. So he couldn't have the same confidence uh, that we can have today. Moses communicated the glory of the Old Covenant with certain obscurity. And then verses 13 and 16 begin to say that the veil is taken away in Christ. Without Christ, the Old Testament is unintelligible. 
With the veil removed, we can see that the glory of God is revealed in Christ. I think this is a lot that we often, honestly, like for me, don't even quite understand or process. But uh, we begin to understand that the law was never given to save, but to point to the one who will save, that, that would. Uh, verse 17, where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Grace does the work. We no longer live under bondage or condemnation or under Satan's dominion. And then verse 18 yet. We all with unveiled faces behold the glory of God. We have nothing, today we have nothing obstructing our vision of Christ and his glory as it's revealed in Christ or in scriptures. And we're being transformed, we're being sanctified into the same image of Christ, into Christ's likeness through the Spirit. And this, this sets the foundation that Paul starts in, in chapter 4 when he says, therefore. Paul understands this is what we have in the new covenant. And he wants the church in Corinthians to understand that this is what they have. This is what we have. And he says, therefore, having this ministry. Uh, and I wanted to look, next look at this ministry. It's, so Paul is writing for his ministry here. And so I think it's important to make sure we we stay in context with Scripture versus just pulling out a couple words to make sure, you know, so we can roll with them. Uh, while he's talking about his ministry, he's not specifically only talking about his calling as an apostle. Because if we look back at the Scriptures, we look at, and there are other Scriptures in Corinthians then too, but where he continues to say, we all, we all, we all. And so Paul's calling was specific to him. But this calling of ministry that he had was, is also uh, inviting us into and having that power that we just read about. Wanted to uh, look a little bit more into that. I think the, so I was studying this, I thought, like, I remember the, the first message that I ever preached at the old noodle factory. I preached a message. I don't remember any of the others after that, but, you know, when it, uh, it was uh, apostolic passion. And so I went back, and I got just a couple notes from that, because this... Uh, while we're not called to Paul's specific ministry, we are called to the same apostolic passion. And that simply means, to be an apostle means to be sent, to be a messenger. And passion is what you die for. It's what you would give your life for. It's what you'll suffer for. It's what you'll give everything to. And so an, an apostolic passion is literally just to wherever God has called you, that you would have a burning passion, a willingness to suffer to go out and, take his, and make his name known to the nations, make his glory known to the nations, uh, have a passion for if God calls you to orphan care, if God calls you to, to work on behalf of those that are trafficked, that they would have justice. The, the list goes on and on. But an apostolic passion is a passion that God's glory would be known to all nations, to every tribe, to every name, and that all people would, under, would be able to experience their value in Christ uh, and to experience the justice that God wants in their lives, that they would have that fulfillment of being a son or a daughter of, of, of him. And so that's, that's, what, that's, that's our ministry. That's our, that's our calling. Yes, it's a little different than Paul's, but it's, it's almost the same. Uh, and it's what, he's, it's what God is asking us to step into. If we live without a vision of God's glory, without an apostolic passion filling the whole earth, we live in danger of simply serving our own dreams, of serving our own self-purposes. I'm not sure who said it, but someone said, we, only, we will become overfed, under-motivated Christians hiding behind the excuse that God has never spoken to them. 
So whatever your gifts, whatever your talents, whatever God has gifted you toward where I started with the message off, like, just like dive in to Scripture, dive into prayer, and stay there and stay there and stay there until you have a burning passion to do what God has called you to do. Uh, because God, it's, maybe it's a bit of a paradox, God won't let you just sit there. So when I say just stay there, stay there, if you're diving into Scripture and to prayer, uh, you won't stay there. But it is our, it is our calling, it's our, it's our ministry that God has put on our heart. And then the last part of the verse, and I won't break every verse down this much, don't worry, you won't be here for that long, but it says, do not lose heart. Jesus founded a church that could not be destroyed. Chuck Colson in the book, uh, How Now Shall We Live, says, it couldn't be destroyed by the deaths of his followers in the Colosseum, not by the barbarian hordes or the mighty Turkish emperors, not by modern tyrants or the power of sophisticated ideologies. And after two days, we sorry, 2,000 years, we can affirm that Jesus Christ is indeed the same yesterday, today, and forever. This alone should cause the Christian to be jubilant, bold, confident, committed to engaging in contemporary culture with a fresh vision of hope. And then Colson goes on to say, but yet often Christians find themselves going back to the safety of people that are like them, going back to, to, to hiding, because when we do, and, and uh, I think it's verse 4, and we won't dive into that, it says the God of this age rules this world. And so when we do go out with what's typically known as Judeo-Christian values, we will often be seen as intolerant, we'll be seen as inclusive, bigoted, words like that. And, and they cause us to either want to fight and use words back, or they cause us to want to, to hide and only surround ourselves with those that that have the same values, the same worldview as us, because it's just safer. Um, and, and, and Colson goes on to say that, that when uh, the church, that, that, that we have an obligation to impact our culture, uh, even if, uh, rather, than, rather, than stepping, rather than stepping back. And he says that nothing could be deadlier to the church than to turn our backs on culture uh, as is our biblical mandate, because it if we turn our back, it, devi- it denies God's sovereignty over all of life. Uh, so, therefore, what we have in the new covenant, our ministry, that calling that Paul had, that apostolic passion, God has placed on us. And then he's saying, be bold, even if it becomes difficult, but do it in love. 1 Corinthians 13 makes that clear. Only do it in love as a witness to Christ. Or of, of who he is, not as a prosecuting attorney. Um, I think verses 2 through, through 6 have a lot of just, uh, they're powerful verses of saying, we don't tamper with the word of God. We don't, we're not deceitful. We're not cunning. We don't try to trick you into the gospel. And we also don't try to, to water it down so it's pleasing to those in the church or to an unbelieving world. We don't tamper with the gospel. Uh, and he's saying that even if it's veiled to those that are perishing, the, me- the problem is not the message or the messenger. The problem is uh, that, that they have been blinded. And, and what we can pull out of that, and I think this is always so important to remember, is you don't have to convince anyone. You have to be a witness. God does the convincing, not you. And so when you engage, just do it, just do it as a witness in, in love. Um, 
And just remember, uh, in verse 4, the God of this age, the God of this world, uh, all the ideas, opinions, goals, hopes, and views of culture, art, and philosophies, education, business, have been blinded by the ruler of this world. Uh, and what we proclaim is not of ourselves. And we only proclaim Christ in humility, verse 5. I want to get to verse 7, so that's why we're... Uh, verse 6, a little bit yet. I found it interesting look, studying that in, to the Hebrew, light was everything. The idea of light was the best way to symbolize God. Uh, it spoke of uh, holiness, goodness, knowledge, wisdom, grace, hope, and God's revelation. So to the Hebrew, light symbolized God. To the Roman, glory symbolized, like, is what they connected with, the, like, the glory of Rome, the glory of Caesar. Uh, and to the Greek, it was knowledge. And so often when you see Paul writing to different specific groups, you see him, you see him writing to wh- how they will best connect to God. It's not tampering or taking anything away, but it's saying, I understand this culture will best resonate and understand who God is when I speak about glory or knowledge or light. And so I think it's important, two fronts for us as a people as we engage with culture. It's important that we actually know Scripture. We understand the context and when it was written and, wh- and why it was written the way it was so that we can better, so that we can understand how they were engaging with culture. And then for us, it's really important for us to, to know the culture that we're speaking to and to speak that language and not to speak some language that they won't connect with. And by language, I'm not talking language. I'm saying like, Words, words matter, and so how you use them will, will impact the witness that we are to a world around us. Verse 7, that's the one we want, I want it to, to look at, so I'm just going to read it again. It says, but we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. This should make, uh, so we are clay pots. This should make you feel good. Clay pots were refined by fire. They were cheap. They were breakable. They were replaceable. They served necessary household functions of storage, garbage, and human waste. Um, So that is us. Uh, And out of that, the the light of the gospel can shine out. This is how Paul viewed himself. He viewed himself as weak, as weary, frail, uh, and understood that in this, God placed the treasure of the gospel. So this morning, what if we would take the time to gain a biblical understanding of what it means to be weak and to be comfortable with that? Uh, it's hard for us. I was just speaking about how you speak to culture. This, like, to be weak, I mean, uh, that's probably every culture, but especially in our culture, like, to be weak is not a strength. Um, so what if we would get a biblical understanding of, of what it means to be weak and the power that comes from that, and that it can be an asset. Our weakness draws our attention to the one who never grows weary. So the great, the great purpose of why we are called jars of clay is to show that the surpassing power of God belongs to God and not to us. And I just, we are weak, we're frail, we're replaceable, but yet we're chosen and we're loved. And God makes it clear that salvation is the result of his power and not by any power that we as people can muster. And I really like this idea that the, this is the power of the gospel. The power of the gospel is that God 
transcends the clay pot. God transcends the clay pot. And when, and when we recognize that, people can see something different. And that's where weakness becomes an asset. His power transcends it. Our weakness is not a flaw. It's not fatal to the work of what God wants to do. It's essential. In our weakness, the light of the gospel shines forth. So just wrapping it up in conclusion, I want uh, Romans 10, 15, as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. This morning, as a people, you know, we're, we're a broken church. We're a broken people. We're, we're weak. We're replaceable. And we, we bring all of that into our into our church, into our marriages, into our families, into our work, wherever we interact with, we just bring the frailty, the weakness of who we are into it. Uh, But through our brokenness, through our weakness, through the scars that we carry, uh, the light of the gospel, the Passover lamb, the kinsman redeemer, the restorer, the king of kings and the lord of lords is revealed uh, to a hurting world. And we have talked about restoring culture uh, and the culture, when, when we recognize that we're clay pots that have scars, that have bruises, that have been cracked, um, and, and we, we see weakness as an asset, and we see that the gospel transcends that, uh, culture around us will begin to be restored, which is the foundation, the basis of what missions was in the very beginning, to bring humanity back to where it was in perfect, perfect communion with God for how it was created in the Garden of Eden. That's the biblical basis of missions and our calling to it, and it starts with understanding of our who we are as jars of clay. Uh, so, let's close with a word of prayer. We won't have a song afterwards, so you can. Uh, and I'll just uh, pray a dismissal prayer, and then you're free to go. Thank you for your attention. Let's pray, Heavenly Father. This morning, we want to just thank you for for your love, God. We want to thank you that every book. Every uh, book in the Bible is, has, has you, Jesus, has you in it as, as its purpose, that it all ties to, uh, to you, to our Redeemer. God, this morning we, we recognize that we are simply uh, jars of clay as pots that are replaceable, breakable. Uh, we rec- uh, and we, we recognize that it is, that is only through that that the power, the light of the gospel shines forth. God, this morning we want to pray your power, the power of your spirit would just be upon us as a church, as people, as families, and that we would take that weakness, that we would take and, and use it as a strength and, and, and begin to transform a culture around us, a world around us with your love uh, shining forth from us. In Jesus' name, amen. You are dismissed. <laughs>